One herd had only a single baby, their last hope for the future. <laughs> and they called him Littlefoot. Here I am. Welcome back to Ramblin', the podcast where we explore the great valley of Amblin' Entertainment to see what connections we can make along the way. I am one half of your host, Andrew Godian. And I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. And today we have put together our own makeshift herd for our discussion, as we have not one guest, but two joining us today. <gasps> Please welcome to the show our friends, my ex-housemates, fellow Warwick film grads, and all-round good eggs, Michael Perry and Nicole Davis. <laughs> Welcome to the show, folks. Hello! Hey! How are you both doing? Good, I appreciated that intro a lot. Yeah, that was sparkling. <laughs> You're welcome. You're the best eggs. You are the best eggs. <laughs> I forget you live with both of these fine people. I lived with Michael for a year, but never, never you, Nicole, but you always seem like a very nice house guest whenever I visited. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I wonder if that would have tested our uh, relationship. In a, in a way. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> uh, we, we all, of course, met studying film and bonded over our mutual love of not just cinema, books and music, all kinds of pop culture, really. Um, but for you guys to kind of get into this, what is it about Amblin that maybe kind of folds into your love of cinema and pop culture and stories of its ilk? I mean, for me, like, they're just all the films that I grew up with as a child, like, looking at the list on Wikipedia. And, like, Steven Spielberg was just huge for me as a child. Like, I think they were the films that my dad showed me first. You know, your Jurassic Parks, your ETs, your Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like, just those were things that I was consuming yeah, like probably way too young to be watching them, to be honest, but I was <laughs> watching them. Um, and so my entry point into cinema was literally ambling entertainment, I think. Yourself, Michael? Yeah, very similar, really. Um, I think this has been mentioned on the podcast a couple of times. I think Jack talked about it last week, um, about how the main medium we were consuming these through was VHS. And our household was very VHS heavy. I think probably skewed more towards stuff that we just taped off the telly at Christmas time. Um, and then me and my yep. sister would just binge watch over and over and over again so much of this stuff. And it's funny because looking back, there's a lot of childhood movies I kind of had the same impression of. And it's it's quite interesting to look at the connective tissue between the Amblin movies. There's not kind of... There's nothing that feels too distinctive when you're actually like growing up because for me, I found it a bit hard to sort of like pull movies apart in terms of, oh, I can see who's made this or how this is different from this. Um, 
but when I was looking through the list, it was very much like, yeah, this is Sunday afternoon fair. This is me and my sister in front of the TV, um, where we have to fast forward through all of the like Channel Four adverts every twenty minutes. Um, <laughs> it's that kind of warmth of just remembering back and thinking, yeah, this is these are films I've watched upwards of ten times, um, in some cases, um, like the Caspers, and in this case, stories of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. I remember that with VHS, like sometimes the tapes would run out. Wouldn't it be like the worst day ever? Like when suddenly yeah, it just like... would no longer, or like the the, yeah. the, the actual tape, and like you'd have to like get a pencil and like like wind it around or something. Oh, that was and, like, so stressful. You, and like your parents days. would be like, I don't, I don't think it's gonna work, and you'd be like, please make it work. <laughs> I'd often be the one, I'd be the one doing the surgery whilst my parents are watching it. I'd just like, do you need help? It's like, no, leave me be. <laughs> I'll be fine. <laughs> We used to get a bunch of uh, a bunch of spare plastic VHS cases from the local video shop, empty ones, and I would design my own video covers for the oh, things that I yes. taped off the <laughs> And I still have. When I was home recently for my belated Christmas, I found a bunch of them. Like uh, I have my my cherished one, which is not really relevant to this particular podcast. I was a big Jim Carrey boy growing up. My cherished VHS tape was one that I made of Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and Dumb and Dumber, a little double two header. With a homemade case, <laughs> which I found, I was very excited to know that I still had. That's adorable. I really want to get hold of a VHS player to watch mm. at least like one of these on an old VHS, just to yep. really like really nail down into that nostalgia with the flicker and everything. So often bring up, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, and just the, the trailers, yes. <laughs> yes. So often, when so often, Andy and I will will sort of descend into these conversations, not about the films themselves, but about the trailers that preceded the films on the videotapes that we owned as kids, which was almost as big a part of the experience as watching the films themselves. Oh, completely. I feel like that's why I'm such a trailer nut going into yeah. cinemas now. I'm like, you no, know, we have to be there yeah. like 15 minutes beforehand, so yeah. we like get yeah. our popcorn in time for the trailers. And it's like it's part of it's part of the show. <laughs> they always get you with that one last car ad though. <laughs> I I suppose I ought to ask my compulsory question. Uh, I think, Nicole, you mentioned this film explicitly, so I'll I'll come to you first. First of all, are you much of a film crier? As in, do I cry cry in films? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. um, You know what? I'm going to say no, just because I I can't remember the last time I did. I I definitely have, like Titanic, obviously sobbing, Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, I definitely have sobbed at films, but I can't remember the last time I did cry a film. Is uh is is ET one such film that you cry at? Um, you know what? I don't think I did cry at ET. No. Oh, add to the tally. <laughs> yeah, I'm a terrible, I should, I should. terrible person with a heart of stone. <laughs> no, no, well, I'm with you. <laughs> Many of you. Would, you. Yeah, <laughs> you and most of our guests so far, Nicole. This is, I, I asked, I started asking this question thinking that I'd be the clear winner, but so far I think Andy's very much in the lead with uh, with with his stone. Or lack of emotions. Mike, what about yeah, I yourself? I get it. <laughs> I do, you're, you're a crier, aren't you, Mike? Before we get to that, I do just want to say, when Andy said, add it to the tally, um, just for the benefit of those <laughs> listening, he did like turn to one side and look like he was writing something down. It was like, it was like in Community, where Troy does the notches thing on the table. <laughs> I would also like to add that that was, I, I'm, that was complete pantomime. I have nothing here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm adding to it. I, I just did it for the sake of the bit. <laughs> he, sa- he says sheepishly hiding his slate and his, hammer, and his hammer and chisel 
Get out of here. <laughs> Go. <laughs> anyway, oh. sorry, Michael. Uh, so do I cry at E.T.? Um, I actually meant to rewatch E.T. prior to this podcast, but I'm such a disorganized mess of a human being that I haven't got around to it yet. Um, but I don't remember crying watching E.T. up until this point. I think probably the last time I saw it, I must have been... Oh, it was before I was a teenager, so it is like okay. some time ago. Oh, it's but right. I have it's had, right. <laughs> I have had that kind of like adult. Well, for me, I think Josh, we've talked about this a bit. Like I've kind of hit a watershed where now stuff just makes yeah. me cry, and I think it came on. Yeah. Like for me, the one that I remember from that moment, I've kind of just my defenses have been lowered a bit. Was um, the film Arrival with um, with Amy Adams' incredible That's performance? A good cry. Um, and Josh, we saw this in the cinema together with some friends, and mm-hmm. I don't think any of us cried because um, that was the first time we'd seen it. And then a few days later, someone else asked me if I wanted to go see it, and I was like, "Yeah, I could pay to see that again, sure." And one of those things where you know when you go to see a film with someone and you know they're gonna love it, and you're just ready to sort of like, in a way, just live this second viewing through them. <laughs> and so I was just kind of in it for the ride, but then the first five minutes kicked in on the second viewing, and I've never wept like it at anything. Um, just s- tears streaming down my face. The person mm-hmm. I was with thought that I needed to leave. Um, <laughs> but since then, I, I cry at all sorts, man. Um, yeah. It's... I would say it's a problem, but it's not a problem. I'm kind of, I'm kind of grateful yeah, for nice. it. Yeah, It's nice. It's like scratching an Is itch, it? isn't it? Does it count as a point for you if Mike cried at a separate E.T. movie? Because it's still aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's still aliens. Yeah, so, yeah that's a yeah. really long-winded way for me to say, no, I don't think I cry at E.T. Cried, <laughs> Michael has cried at an E.T. I didn't specify that it had to be oh. the E.T. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Pop, there we go. Get, your, get your slate out, Andy. Get the slate. I've already Chalk smashed it now. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, Talking about films that make you cry, we have welcomed you here, of course, to talk about Don Bluth's 1988 prehistoric animation, The Land Before Time, directed by Bluth and produced by Spielberg and George Lucas, along with Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall at Amblin Entertainment. But our first stop on the way to the Great Valley before we really get going is, of course, our synopsis from Joshua Glenn. Josh, take it away. Thank you, Andrew. In the land before time, not really called that, just that's what the film's called. In the land before time, there are two types of dinosaur. Those with flat teeth, who survive off the produce of the land, and those with sharp teeth, teeth who feed on other creatures' teeth. <laughs> uh, when a famine deprives the leafy as of their source of nourishment, they're forced to travel across the land in search of an oasis known as the Great Valley. Into this turmoil is born Littlefoot, voiced by Gabriel Damon, a long neck part of a herd made up only of his mother, voiced by Helen Shaver, and his grandparents. When Littlefoot is grown, his mother explains to him that there are many different kinds of dinosaurs, and they all keep to themselves. This is how it's always been. Despite this, Littlefoot attempts to befriend a three-horn he encounters called Sarah, voiced by Candace Houston. The two play together until their antics draw the attention of a sharp tooth. This nasty piece of work pursues them and looks set to eat them until Littlefoot's mother intervenes. The two fight viciously, even as an earthquake begins to split the land, swallow up the unlucky dinosaurs, and split herds in two. The sharp tooth is eventually consumed by a fiery crevice, but not before landing a fatal blow. Littlefoot finds his mother on the verge of death, just in time to hear her say, Littlefoot, let your heart guide you. 
It whispers. So listen closely. I don't know why that went. Is she Irish? Irish? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Irish production. I don't, I, don't, I don't remember her being Irish. <laughs> I was trying. To, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what I was going for with that. I can't snap out of it now. Sorry, everyone. You sound sorry. like you're in wild <laughs> mountain time. <laughs> I am Christopher Walken. And, and, um, uh, I, Irish if you want, if it's the only way. <laughs> pick pick the, the worst time to, to, to fumble. Um, uh, so, yeah, so she says that, which is all nice and. and oh, mate. And that. Uh, crestfallen, <laughs> crestfallen, and separated from his grandparents, Littlefoot now has to rely on the words of his mother and his own initiative in order to find the Great Valley and outsmart the Sharptooth, who wasn't killed by its fall. Luckily, Littlefoot's open-minded nature leads to encounters with a big mouth named Ducky, voiced by Judith Barcy, a flyer named Petri, voiced by Will Ryan, and a hungry spike tail named Spike, voiced by no one because he doesn't speak. They establish a makeshift herd and, along with a stubbornly proud Sarah, attempt to reunite with their families and find the fabled promised land. And that's all I've got. Sorry about Sorry about the, the sad bit. Irish mother. It's okay, little foot. After, after last week's debacle with the Roger Rabbit synopsis and the accent I tried to do then, I think I'm just going to stop trying to do accents on this podcast. It never I can take seems to go well. Um, and also in that last episode, Josh, you revealed that this is a film that you've never seen before. So mm-hmm. um, I, this is usually the point in the show where we ask about childhood connections, but I'm going to I'm going to zoom straight past you. Yeah. What, what was your childhood like? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my childhood was spent watching Crocodile Dundee and Good Burger, not watching <laughs> The Land Before Time for some reason. And also Wild Wild West, because I've not mentioned that film in a while, so I should just... Yeah, yeah there are a few more as well, the Land Before Time crew and the Good Burger crew. Every Friday night, Mum would come out with both and be okay. So, Land Before Time, <laughs> Good Burger. <laughs> but Josh, you haven't seen Land Before Time yet, and you've seen Good Burger thirty-three thousand times. No Good Burger, please, Mum. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I, I hope that's true. Skip, <laughs> skip me. I'll, I'll sit out for this round. Uh, Nicole, is it a very different story for your household growing up? Completely. I mean, I've lost count of the number of times that I must have seen this film. I was thinking about it today because it might, it, it's partly down to the fact that the types of entertainment that are on offer when you're a child are quite limited by nature of the fact that you can only see like a handful of things that are age appropriate. But then also, I guess, less was coming out around that time. So whatever you did get your hands on and enjoy, you would watch over and over again, just because there probably wasn't that much else out there. So I definitely wore out the tape on Land Before Time. I remember it just being something that was, I mean, weirdly, actually, we'll get onto this because I found it a lot more um, poignant than I remember as a child but I used to like comfort watch it like whenever I was sick or you know just you know not feeling myself or whatever the what like is affecting you as a four-year-old I just remember like putting on the land before time as the thing that would sort of make me happy again <laughs> <laughs> how about yourself Michaels similar similar backstory to you and the land before time yeah, yeah, very similar. Um, I was texting my sister about this uh, in the week just to sort of like gauge what her impressions were. But I remember this is one that we watched a fair amount. But I think we watched the se- the first sequel more than we watched the original. And I think that has something to do with the fact that we had the sequel's official video. Um, and right, the Land Before yeah. Time we have, I 
we had, I think, was just taped off the telly. So the quality, I mean, you know, six one, half a dozen of the other, the quality was probably a bit lower. Um, and to our young brains, I think we just had, possi- we were possibly just driven more to the sequels, like exponentially lighter uh, tone. Um, it's much brighter. It's much it more is, bouncy. It's a musical, it's as, a musical well, right? as well. Sing along stuff. Um, so I think like we, I have like clearer memories of watching the sequel as a kid. I think the first one I can remember we had seen it a few times. Um, but what was quite funny and what's quite nice about having this group of people together, um, yeah, sorry, Josh, um, is that Andy and Nicole. I think we in our first year of uni, like a couple of months in, we'd known each other a bit beforehand, but I think it was sometime like. In January of the new term, and um, we were, we just basically went to the pub and we just shared like foundational media with each other. And I'm pretty sure with, the one before desperados, we're yeah, drinking desperados, yeah, <laughs> drinking desperados in the um, in the the dirty uh, duck. Pub. Yeah, and I wasn't invited. <laughs> I think that was the first time I'd actually properly thought about the land before time in a few years, and that then led me to uh, listen to some of the music. Uh, when I was in halls, which then like led me down a nostalgia trail, which ended ended up with me getting the DVD. So there's probably a gap of about ten years between me watching it as a kid and then me watching it a little bit more conscious of you know this is what this film is about, and now you understand why the sequels are so different. Um, so yeah, there's kind of there's a lot there. Like watching it as a child with my sister, um, with the the sequels kind of taking center stage, but then as an adult coming back to this and now feeling like the sequels had their place in my life, but I really find it odd to think of myself watching them again now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I get that. But the first one is like, is the one that's really imprinted <laughs> in, in some way. I like, cause I've definitely seen at least two of the other ones, but to tell you which parts came from what one i'm not too sure yeah <laughs> did you guys find it a bit of a trip re-watching it for this like because obviously i hadn't seen it since i i don't know it was about eight nine like a long long time really? but then obviously some parts of it are like so like deeply in your memory that you can't i don't know like just so many memories came flooding back as like a result of it like they like they were unlocking other things and like things that just seemed so familiar yeah i hadn't seen in like yeah probably over two decades bizarre i had a like weirdly like tactile reaction to it so like even kind of i i have seen this film within like the last 10 10 uh last 10 years of my life so it's not it wasn't super super long ago that i had watched it but like even like watching it to today and just the kind of the really like triggering moments of just like seeing tree roots going over rock in the background or like the, how the uh, reeds look that um, Spike ends up eating and how that sound of the munching and, and stuff like that or duckies yep 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 all those kind of like sounds and sights were all very they're all very yeah triggering in a nice way in which they just kind of they completely throw you back to how you kind of felt when you originally watched it and that's still there <laughs> it's a thing we've said and I think I forget what the episode was Maybe it was the E.T. episode. We said in the past that when you're a kid, you watch a film in a different way. You don't sort of follow the narrative as such. It's more that you take in textural elements. Like like you say, the roots overlapping tree stems and, and the sort of the sound that 
the, the, the Blades of Grass make, or the one that always sticks in my head is in The Lion King when Timon and Pumbaa turn the leaf upside down and it's covered in those big juicy bugs and Simba, you know, chows down on them all. I think stuff like that really sticks in your head from childhood. So when you watch these films again, like in your case, Nicole, the first time since you were eight or nine, that must have been wild to, to have these kinds of sense memories just come flooding mm. back to you. Totally, and like things that would have been so familiar, like tree star. Like I hadn't thought of that word yeah. in so many years, and as soon as it was said, I was like, "Oh my god, of course, it's a tree star!" Like, just, yeah, beautiful Why did I like stop that. calling them that? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was going to pick you up on your synopsis, uh, Josh, because you called it an earthquake, and they call it an earthshake, which I think uh, is like yeah. just yeah, so many yeah. cute bits. It was of a different like time. That. He goes to an Irish mother, he doesn't say <laughs> Well, you know, I, 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 I'm just going to mute myself on this chat for the moment because I, I, have, I have very little to offer in this, uh, in this arena. I'm, I'm really keen to hear your first impressions now, actually, Josh, because, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this. But um, I think, obviously, we've kind of skipped over in terms of, like, childhood attachment to it. But did, what, did you have a childhood awareness of this... Did you have a childhood? <laughs> I had, weirdly enough, I have, uh, I have a similar relationship to this as I did with An American Tale, which also has a, a plethora of not as many straight-to-video sequels, but still a fair few. And it's one, so it, that and this, I remember I would see friends of mine when I go to their house for dinner or, you know, to call on them, I'd find um, video cassettes strewn on the floor and would occasionally catch bits and bobs here and there but I couldn't tell you for sure which of the Land Before Time films I'd seen bits of in the past so I mean there were the designs of them I recognized from childhood and I was yeah like I say I was certainly aware that it existed but I'm almost certain that watching it today was my first time watching it nothing really rung that strong a bell. Were you guys all dinosaur fans when you were kids? Yeah, big time. Well, yeah, well, when Nicole and I were talking about uh, Nicole coming on the podcast to guest, you just requested a dinosaur film, didn't you? That's, that's what <laughs> yeah. you said you wanted to do. Like, just give me a dino. This, up until like the age of 10, was my favourite film. And then it, like Jurassic Park I took as soon as I saw that. So yeah, yeah pure, pure dinosaur nut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I actually saw a lot of like, like yeah, because Jurassic Park came after this, like five years. Yeah. I felt like... Was Steven Spielberg like testing the waters for a dinosaur story with this? Because there were definitely See like some, like. yeah. yeah I, I don't know. So. I felt like Steven Spielberg was just pushing Don Bluth in front of him like a human shield, just like you know. Don Bluth was the goat. Yeah, <laughs> as it were. I think um, yeah. There's a uh, part of the big energy that drew me to the land before time, and I think draws a lot of people to the land before time at a young age is the dinosaur factor um like kids are always going to be crazy about dinosaurs um i always make this terrible joke which is you know oh for an extinct species they've sure got legs and cultural capital um but um it's something which came up when i was just doing a bit of looking around before this podcast which is there's a video from a youtuber called jenny nicholson um that was posted last year and the title of the video is something to the effect of I was on lockdown, so I watched all 14 Land Before Time movies. And then she she basically then, like, tears them. So she ranks them going up to the best. Um, and at the end of it, she makes this summative statement, uh, which is um, she doesn't even put the, the first film in first place. I think it's, like, third or something. Um, 
but then at the end she's talking about the value of these movies for kids and she talks about how objectively like the bulk of the season the series isn't particularly good um but what it does that's quite that has the appeal for kids even if you know there are more sophisticated stories for them or stories that is easy for them to latch onto um you can just project as a dinosaur like in whatever adventures you're getting up to like you want to uh, climb on the back of a sofa pretending you're going over a, like a river of lava yeah you can do that you want to <laughs> pretend you're little foot scaling a mountain when you go and climb up the slide at the park yeah man you've now got like a role model uh you've got a little and idea I did. In your head. yeah we all did um well uh, three of us me um <laughs> but that's yeah that, that's kind of her, her point that she makes at the end which i thought was quite interesting um the fact that you know land before time as a movie has its own merits but really a lot of what attracts people to it at that age is possibly just you know i want to be a dinosaur i want to experience the world as if i am a dinosaur and which dinosaur Mm. did you want to be Mm, uh depends on the age you ask because kid me little foot (laughs) because you know main character adult me is much more of like a spike guy <laughs> that, feels like, yeah, that feels like a really negative uh, take on yourself, Michael. <laughs> is it though? Spike? He's got he's got a pretty nice outlook on life. Yeah. He just kind of <laughs> follows his powers, gets adopted by the end. <laughs> my my favorite part of the film was when Spike hatches from his egg, eats all the grass around him, and then just lays down again to <laughs> to go to sleep. The, I really enjoyed how patiently like he ate all the Josh grass. Josh also related to Spike <laughs> at yeah. this point in his life. Yeah. <laughs> I just, just got it went the same. Yeah. <laughs> He's just a good lad. He's just a good lad. <laughs> I was very much the same in terms of dinosaurs. Do you guys ever remember the ESB? Did you ever have to do it at the ESB at school? What's that? What does that stand it was, for? It was English speaking board and it was a thing in like, we did it in like year three, year five, and then you were supposed to also do it in year seven and year 10, but it got abolished by the point we got to year seven. And you were basically told to do, (laughs) read from a book, um, read a poem, and also give a presentation on a topic you'd like, and then you get marked on it, which which was all quite like high pressure for year three. (laughs) But um, I remember reading um, a Spike Milligan poem an extract from the Iron Giant, and then I did. <laughs> it only had to be ten minutes, but I think I ended up doing about a half a- half an hour presentation on my favorite dinosaurs. <laughs> oh man, that's so pure. And, um, that's I, I did a I did a bit where um, I try and pronounce the. Um, the long uh, proper names for all the dinosaurs and then substitute them out for either a uh, long neck uh, <laughs> or, or 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 a sharp tooth and just kind of try and keep coming up with different cute names for that kids would be able to articulate better than the big dinosaur names. So that was a big reason why Land Before Time appealed to little dino nut Andy because it gave alternative names when I couldn't get my tongue around pterodactyl or pteromodon. When you say uh, the ESB got abolished, that sounds kind of um, intriguing. I'm just imagining that line from Anchorman. Are you doing the ESP this year? It's like, oh no, way too many people were hurt last time. (laughs) (laughs) But I do do remember it being like, people used to get like really like, 
nervous about doing it. So I think they probably had a moment where he just went, maybe it's a bit too early to be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Shut it down. But I love doing that dinosaur presentation, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> Do you reckon you've still got like um, the materials from some of it? Because you sent last year, you sent us a very nice homemade poster of Chicken Run that you found in your old bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I'd have to. That would be a bigger, bigger root in the attic, I think. But I, I hope so. My big old mood boards of dinosaurs. <laughs> Andy, do it for the audience. <laughs> do it for the audience. I'm going back soon, so I'll try. <laughs> I was I had such a different relationship to dinosaurs than you guys because I having not seen this film. I think before I even saw Jurassic Park, I saw The Lost World for some reason, which is much meaner and and bloodier and scarier. So my relationship with dinosaurs was one of abject fear. And uh, you know, nah, they're cool, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm still 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 freaked me out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, the T Rex in this is like pretty demonic like he's got mm, red eyes yeah. red like, yeah 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 even even the t-rex in jurassic park is probably slightly less gnarly mm. yeah yeah well, he's kind of like the hero at the end in a backwards way whereas here what we got we got just a bad and all the way through yeah <laughs> straight up villainy straight up. <laughs> <laughs> nasty piece of work um what what about don bluth with you guys have you seen much else else don bluth start you nicole oh no i don't think i have you know like it's a familiar name to me but i don't mm. i can't think of anything that i've seen did he do an american tale or did he not yeah okay it's... and they're the only two animated films that have come out around i feel like they like start they, char- they, they charted okay because i felt like they charted down this the path only... and then kind of stopped mm. yeah it's not the longest there's path only in the two bluth okay <laughs> only two by bluth as well yeah i'd be interested to hear what else he's done because yeah he's definitely a familiar name but for reasons mm. I can't pin down. Well, Anastasia. Mm. I feel like you strapped me as that's an Anastasia. That's his big one. Youth. Yeah. <laughs> me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, I didn't, I never got on with Anastasia. Really? Yeah, ah. yeah. So I used to have all the, like, Dis- yeah, they must have been Disney, like, um, films on VHS. That was a Fox one. A Fox one. But you know, like, all those animated. Mm. And I remember yeah. Anastasia, Pinocchio, and I think maybe Fantasia were, like, the three that, like, never got touched. Because I, like, watched them once and was like, nope, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I can't remember what it was about Anastasia. Because I remember I really didn't like the long nose on Pinocchio. Um, mm. But I can't remember what it was about Anastasia that turned me but off. Rasputin's pretty grotesque in that film, yeah. if I if I remember. It's been a while that guy. Christopher Lloyd. He's a, he's a far cry from Boney M's version, isn't he? <laughs> how, about, how about you, Mikey? Have you seen much else, else Don Bluth? I haven't, actually. I was thinking uh, An American Tale feels like a really big gap for me. Um, but I think uh, just relative to what you consider yourself to be a big fan of, like, I was huge into The Lamb Before Time. I still find it odd that I hadn't I haven't seen an American tale up until this point um but Anastasia is the other one I can name that I've seen um which I have foggier memories of because I haven't revisited it since um long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know when it was that I last saw that movie um it, I'm that old yeah, I'm to... that old 
<laughs> I've grown wary. <laughs> but I also just feel like that's indicative of watching stuff as a as a child. Because whereas now, mm. like you'd watch something if you loved it, you'd then like look on up on look up the director on IMDb and like then watch their entire canon. Whereas obviously as a kid, you like just watch the same film again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I like Keenan and Kel. I'll watch Good Burger again. You know what I mean? I've got the tapes. <laughs> Well, previously on Ramblin, we have a we dove right into the kind of bigger history of Don Bluth leading up to his time in American Tale, where he has this long history of he's a Disney animator originally who's part of a big movement at the late late 70s from a group of artists there to go out and kind of set up their own studio because they're annoyed with the way that uh, Disney work and how they're feeling like as creators, they're being stifled. He goes through two bankruptcies before... <laughs> before collaborating with Spielberg on an American tale. <laughs> um, this first film was A Secret of Nim, which, while it's very good, was was not good enough to sustain his uh, first, film studi- first film studio. He did a video game called Dragon Slayer, which also was initially successful. Uh, <laughs> the arcade business went bust, so therefore his other company went bust which led him on the path to Steven Spielberg and an American Tale, which was a significant success for both of them. And it was on the production of that that they started talking about um, another project. And uh, Spielberg's original pitch for this was very much Bambi, but with dinosaurs. And I think with the aforementioned uh, not Irish voice mother's death, you can very much (coughs) easily make those connections. Mm -hmm. But... uh, and also quite a big point of inspiration. And I think it's interesting you bring it up as one that you pushed away because it was very much one that I cherished dearly as a kid and still do to this day. I loved Fantasia and particularly the dinosaur bit in Fantasia, <laughs> which was very much used as a kind of basis of uh, this idea that Spielberg had with George Lucas. And say so this is the first time and still the only time that Amblin Entertainment and Lucasfilm have worked on something together. Um, and they both developed the story originally to kind of follow that Fantasia aspect of not having any dialogue between characters and having it all driven by kind of animation and what have you. But um, I think very quickly down the line that became pretty clear that kids were not going to connect to a whole film like that. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember Disney's Dinosaur from like 2000, but I feel like that probably ended up having a similar yeah, <laughs> creative yeah. issue. Yeah. Just going to bring that one up. Yeah. That, one, that one sustains it. For, I, I always had it in my head that, that felt, that's what that film was. It was all like a, a sort of dramatic walking with dinosaurs, but then they start talking after a while, don't they? And it gets all, you know, it gets all <laughs> Disney-fied and silly. Strange film, Dinosaur. Yeah. Uh, the writers of uh, American Tale come on board for Land Before Time with Bluth, uh, Judy Freudberg and Tony Geis are the original writers and then Stu Krieger comes on to do some rework material after uh, to kind of intensify it up a little bit beyond the more cutesy version of the script that um, uh, uh, Freudberg and uh, Tony Geis started working on Um, I I think I should say that that for me, it feels like the point of origin in this kind of production history where you start to see a kind of fraught direction as to what the film they they want, what uh, uh, what film every party kind of wants to make. Uh, we should say that this film was meant to come out in the 
Fall of 87 to kind of follow immediately a year after an American tale. But um, as we mentioned in our previous episode, uh, Don Bluth wanted to move his studio to Ireland to where they had done some work in an American tale and um, were really encouraged by the kind of working atmosphere they created there. And they wanted to move further away from LA to kind of create the space that Don Bluth had always envisioned for himself as this studio away from kind of the leering eyes of LA and kind of the movie business and just to be able to create. Um, but unfortunately that <laughs> while that distance may have been what he wanted, it was something that ended up kind of leading to a fractitious relationship with everyone who was still back in LA um, with co communication being one of the main things that ends up kind of being used as an excuse between different parties of the production here. Because whilst you have uh, Bluefin Island, you've got Universal and Amblin LA. And at this time in production, Spielberg and Lucas are quite involved in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So that, that their times being very much taken up by that and the demands of that schedule making kind of constant communication where <laughs> time zones and barriers between Don Bluth and Spielberg and Lucas and Universal are kind of ends up leading to a point where halfway through production and um, the whole film gets kind of a bit of a reshape after the producers show it to George Lucas at a screening in London. And initially that one was quite amicable where apparently afterwards Bluth and his producer Gary Goldman sat down with George Lucas and uh, Bluth's other producer John Pomeroy and kind of really hashed out the actual eventual structure of what uh, the film kind of kind of ends up being as uh, they had they were about midway through production and they were still at a point where they could take what they had made and try and make some a story that was a bit more of a kind of a journey of a group of friends moving from going on this kind of pilgrimage out west sort of tale whilst also still maintaining that kind of Bambi with dinosaurs approach with uh, the mother scene in particular being uh, one that was widely discussed. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised that they did this, but apparently so much research went into that scene where the mother dies to the point where they kind of talked to psychologists and, and showed psychologists the sequences to give their professional opinions of how like those sequences should be depicted. And that's how you kind of get this old rooter character that kind of comes in at a beat into the film to kind of soften the blow. So, so this feels like a made-by-committee approach, but in a good way, <laughs> bringing a border psychologist to... I wonder if they did the same for Bambi, because I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> There's no softening the blow there. <laughs> and while that kind of... That sort of moment in the production kind of hints at, like, an openness to kind of shape the film together, it's still... The rest... The rest of the time, remember this is midway, the rest of the time there's still that kind of distance of communication and it's not until uh, Lucas and Spielberg see uh, Bluth's cut of the final film that they start to really kind of clunk at heads somewhat. Um, and it's led to quite significant cuts in the whole thing. Uh, it's rumoured that there's about, equates about 19 scenes and I read one report that kind of surmised it as like basically they cut out a million dollars worth of material just like kind of out on the floor uh, uh, and as a result 
that this film comes becomes like this kind of nicely packaged uh 70 minute uh kind of your standard runtime for a kid's movie to something that is barely knocking an hour (laughs) (laughs) the diana ross song starts at 59 minutes on the version that i watched (laughs) it barely limps over the hour mark do you know if it was like subplot that was cut out or just like a longer journey to get to the great valley well this is what i had um so you might have more andy because i think you've you've researched a bit deeper than i have for this one um but just through the accounts that i came across it was kind of like a restructuring of the last leg of the movie um which watching as an adult i was actually able to appreciate a bit more um in terms of where the joins were because you can see them and also um some of the more allegedly traumatic uh moments in the first sharp tooth fight with um littlefoot's mother um mm-hmm. spielberg and lucas i think after their screening they were a bit shaken up by what they saw and they were like we this will have kids crying in the auditoriums um we we can't set this off as it is you need to really trim that that part down in particular yeah yeah I, particularly even just to the point where like shots of sharp tooth's face and just kind of the characters close to the teeth in his eyes were moments that they were just like no trim that trim that down trim that down trim that down and that it becomes very clear that like there's two lines of thinking in this movie because Bluth has pre- presented them with a film which is kind of very textured and quite intense um, for a kid's movie, but also uh, a lot of people involved said they had this kind of artistry. And then you've got Spielberg and Lucas pushing for something that is ultimately going to be the more commercially viable option to kind of push out this story that they initially developed and like it, even even to the point where like even when Bluth begrudgingly made these cuts Spielberg apparently still tweaked and trimmed and slightly like mixed around the music and the sound editing here and there like even to the point of bringing down different screams and putting in less intense children's screams into for a film which I think still has really intense children's screams. <laughs> yeah, and it's quite harrowing, right? Because obviously dinosaurs wouldn't react in that way. So it kind of pulls yes. you back into like, oh, there are children voicing these like yeah. characters when they're like, yeah, screaming like high pitched. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and even though there's this like tug of war going on between uh, the creators behind it. It's still interesting. I think that Universal still has this confidence in it to put it out on the exact same day in November 1988 as uh, the Disney movie of that year, Oliver and Company. Ooh. I don't know if uh, anyone well, remembers that one quite as fondly. Well, <laughs> with regards to Universal's opinion of the film, all I have to say is, why should they worry? I'm sorry, I, I've not got much to offer in this podcast, so I'm just, I'm just going to keep throwing little bits out, seeing if they stick, and you know when they don't. That's fine. If retreating as long back as, into like, my most hole. of them are Billy Joel flavored, I'm really, good. I'm really here for it. <laughs> uh, but uh, on that kind of release, uh, Land Before Time, I would say, won the battle as it came in at number one at the box office with uh, 7.5 million in its opening weekend, whilst Oliver came in fourth with 4 million. But by at the end of its theatrical run, uh, Land Before Time had made 84.5 million worldwide and was actually in fact beaten by Oliver and Company 
at the end of the day in terms of the overall numbers. But still pretty positive numbers for uh, the land before time. And uh, by the end of its run, it had grossed 48 million at the US box office, which was slightly more than an American tale had done previously for Amblin and Bluth. So while it may have been a success on that side, it does very much mark the end of Bluth and Amblin's time together. Um, with Bluth and Gary Goldman and uh, John Pomeroy all kind of at the time and in interviews kind of after the fact do express their kind of disappointment at um, the way the story ended up being developed. With Ga Gary Goldman being a bit more blunt, he got a good quote that I think really does kind of surmise what was the tension at the heart of this and what ultimately led to the two parting ways. He said, it dipped into what we call uh, pablum and it was directed after the fact to an age group of four to six or seven year olds and it eliminated some of the things that we found exciting. As you know, there are over 10 minutes cut from the film and I believe the cuts were the absolute correct choice to be made to make it commercially successful. But some of the elements that were cut from the film were beautiful and exciting and extremely artistic, both direction-wise and animation-wise. So that really surmises that tension that mm -hmm. breaks, breaks down this partnership. Amblin do go on to try and their hand at animation with different uh, directors and artists at the helm with uh, Amblimation being established. More on that in a few episodes' time. <laughs> Whilst um, Bluth then goes down a kind of path of again quite similar to early in his career his next film all dogs go to heaven was quite successful but the rest that followed like uh oh what is it rockadoodle uh fumbelina troll in central park and the pebble and the penguin were all big big old critical and commercial flops um and whilst he had that high point with anastasia later into the 90s at fox that also quickly went off a cliff with titan ae in uh, 2000 when that flopped massively and kind of buried Fox animation in total. Um, and, and Bluth seems to have kind of gone away from the animation world a, a bit, but uh, he is somewhat back in action, as you can <laughs> follow him on YouTube, um, where he is uh, kind of producing his own uh, animation efforts over YouTube. And he's uh, doing uh, video blogs of the kind of pre-production elements and all the sketching of the characters and the design to then lead up to releasing a final film, which I think is very sweet. And I'm, I'm very happy that, that uh, very Don cool. Bluth is happy making his own little stories still <laughs> and his own animations. He got there in the end. <laughs> <He> got... <laughs> Fair play to him. That sounds great. Yeah. Like, like, again, it's sort of like at this point, is he's sort of proven everything he has to. So it's sort of like whether the film is lauded or not is kind of besides the point. Yeah. I think it's really cool that you've got him still working on this stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and like as we are, we're here, like particularly the three of us who grew up with it, and other films of his kind of back catalogue that I've mentioned there, that there is a lot of affection for them, particularly I think in people our age and people who also grew up in the eighties and the nineties. Mm. So uh, you've always got to be pretty happy that even as an animator in those kind of tough times, when you kind of come out the other side, you are seeing that these things still have like a great life and there is a lot of love and adoration for them uh even when you kind of look back on them as adult lives because i for i don't know if it was the same for you guys but kind of going in with this uh context of kind of knowing that there's like there's 10 minutes of this film that we'll likely never see 
despite the fact that Bluth says that he has a film reel somewhere. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> um, I, 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 I know you kind of mentioned it a bit there, Michael. You can kind of get a little sense of it, particularly in that final act. But I, I wonder for you guys looking at this with adult eyes, um, how much of that kind of is a bit more evident, even if you weren't too familiar with that kind of context, how much the rhythms of the story work for you at this point in time. I mean, everything you said there kind of makes sense for me, having now watched it as an adult, because it very much feels like a film of two halves. You've got this sort yeah. of, the first half is just a lot more, it's much bleaker than I remember it. Um, you've obviously, they're obviously living, living in this kind of like, um, devastated wastelands, like looking for a paradise. And then obviously with the death of Littlefoot's mother, it then becomes this quite trippy meditation on grief. Um, and I remember, I definitely remember him like curling up in her footprint and and and, yeah. and those kind of. But I I don't I just don't recall it being ever that dark or all that scary like from the off. Like even with the animation at the beginning, where you've got um, is it like the turtles or the fish? And then you've yeah, got this yeah. like outline of like some kind of like crocodile esque fish that like you just got yeah. this like spectre of death throughout the entire film. Um, straight um, in with the threat exactly like and <laughs> you know, perpetual perpetual threat and I just don't remember that where like what I remember is like yeah the band of merry dinosaurs like pootling along being like yep 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 um, but yeah I just don't this remember <laughs> exactly but then so yeah I feel like obviously you've got Bluth's half which is like the beginning I guess half and then yeah. the, the ending is yeah much more of the commercial story yeah Josh, did you... How about you, Mike? I was going to say, did Josh, I know this was your first time seeing it, so I, I think it's more sort of soaking in the surface content. But did anything hmm. stick out for you in terms of feeling a little bit um, out of place or like there were a few odd transitions or anything like that? Why it, it was... I'd, I had read into the, the cut of footage beforehand and I was... Because with An American Tale, a similar thing happened and there are continuity errors, like a whole character vanishes in that film and we didn't fully appreciate that until discussing it with Barry afterwards but I didn't notice anything quite as egregious as that in the film but I did there did seem to be a slight um a whiplash is too strong a word but there there is kind of a, a slightly discordant tone like it opens like you say Nicole with that really sort of severe uh barren landscape establishing the threat of the world with the the dying leaves and the carnivores and these sort of volcanic apocalyptic visions in the background and then it pivots immediately into this cutesy business when, when Sarah hatches from the egg and she's she's chasing that dragonfly and she's sort of running around with the egg on her head. And you've got these two, it's a very severe tone and it's a very, very cutesy, you know, kiddie-friendly tone. And those two things sort of exist side by side throughout and they keep sort of like butting heads a little bit throughout the whole film. And um, yeah, it, I don't know. There was just a slight, that kind of... I don't it never quite reconciled for me in a way that i was able to properly because i mean I, I, i'll get this out of the way now because i don't want to i want the good times to resume so I'll, I'll be the sort of the naysayer in the corner like <laughs> it didn't quite get through to me like i thought it would because several people before i watched it today said um oh let's know when you're watching it because i want to watch it with you i want to kind of see your reactions and stuff and my girlfriend really wanted to watch it with me she because she knows how much I cry at films and, and she, I mean, she wanted to sort of see the effect. 
But I um I didn't, and I'm I'm very surprised by that. Maybe it was the expectation of, of it's going to be this great yeah, Bambi I think movie that probably got built up too much yeah. for you. <laughs> but the whole way through, I, I thought the the stuff with the mum was very nicely done. Like um the the bit when she's talking to him about the tree stars and all that, I thought that was really nice. And the actual death scene itself was really like sort of subtly beautifully done. It makes sense they spoke to child psychologists to do it. Um, but there was just something in these two spots and again it's a similar criticism that we had about an american tale these two sort of opposing tonal impulses and um it kind of made a wall that i couldn't or maybe the opposite to maybe i kind of made a wall that it couldn't quite get through because it didn't ever quite seem to be able to unify those impulses um in in, in a way that i found dramatically potent much as I wanted to, like, the whole thing, I was like, come on, come on, come yeah. on, I want to <laughs> make it happen. It just never never quite uh, permeated. Uh, but then I do think, I mean, it, it's not original to say that a lot of Amblin films depend on childhood associations. I mean, some of them do work independently, like your E.T.'s and your Back to the Futures and your Roger Rabbits and that. I do think a lot of them um, do rely on... Uh, a childhood association you, you do bring a lot of that stuff back when you watch it as an adult and have, having never had that myself um all, all i had was my sort of cold cynical adult eyes looking at it and sort of seeing the, the the sort of the you know the cracks and that kind of thing so so yeah i don't know not not a wholly not a wholly satisfying uh, experience for me i'm sorry to say but um that that that's my bit done. So I will now retreat <laughs> and allow you guys to continue uh, espousing love for this film. For what it's worth, Josh, I kind of had that impression watching it again last week. Because um, mm. I was sort of watching it with two parts of my brain engaged, where I was like, I am the yeah. person who has kind of grown up with this movie or really kind of feels moved to sort of revisit this. But mm-hmm. also watching it from the perspective of, oh, I like I said earlier, you can kind of see the joins and where it doesn't mm. quite kind of capture what, I might have thought it used to capture. Um, and I want to just, about that, I don't just want to sound like I'm just describing exactly what nostalgia is, mm. um, but I may well be doing so. Um, <laughs> which is, uh, there are just those certain particular um, bits of media in your life that you sort of, you um, you come to at a certain age, perhaps, um, but then later down the the line it will just come back and surprise you in some way and you will realize not necessarily because you want to go back to the place you were then just it's not a case of i want to revisit this because it will remind me of feeling in this particular way um there are those parts of culture that sort of you the more you think about without necessarily consciously knowing it all the way through they've sort of become points that help you understand how you've grown and Mm. how art has grown alongside it and those two things feed into each other and there are certain things which become so special you don't necessarily notice them straight away but i think we've all got things like this it's like um just as an example like rewatching the series spaced for me last year which i first saw about 10 years ago and you sort of realize how much of how much you use these um cultural works to sort of orientate yourself and how you understand the world and that sort of thing. And I don't mean that to sound too highfalutin, but um, in this film, watching it again now, I was watching it thinking, if you didn't sort of have that connection, it would be a bit lost. Um, But I think there's enough in it that you can sort of see 
where people are coming from when they rhapsodize about this movie um because for me i think like watching it now i can see the flaws in it and i wouldn't say it's a perfect film um but it just means so much to me and there's so much in sort of how i grew to understand the world whether it was through pretending to be a little foot on a slide or just <laughs> you know um absorbing culture off the back of this like going from this into jurassic park and that sort of thing um and so not, it is a bridge <laughs> yeah yeah it's a real bridge um but i think for this film um while there are those cracks i came up with when i was watching it this time i think the overall effect is it still manages to work and i think the main um part of the movie that does a lot of heavy lifting for me emotionally is james horner's score um which i think is just absolutely crucial um in this movie working as well as it does yeah i mean james horner's like come up he's definitely the the composer has come up the most so so fast in this podcast journey um worked with blue from an american tale batch is not included as well i think i think even <laughs> our next film dad he scored <laughs> so, so he, it's like he's a such a big component of yeah. why so many of these films work and i think why so many of them end up kind of like having that weight on your memory like because like particularly for me i like even from the off it could it put me really in a kind of like slight dizzy emotional state because i like i like just had a really sudden like <gasps> moment when the kind of water effect comes up and the titles are coming up and i was like oh god i really remember that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And um, to to the point where it, like because it does have its emotional peak with um, Littlefoot's mother dying in this like kind of very intense literal world shattering shattering moment as the Earthshake comes and separates all the characters from their parents and also where Littlefoot's mother dies after a courageous battle with the Sharp Tooth and that that very stark moment after all that chaos where. It is just the kind of rain and the lightning and the darkness and the big kind of the the size the kind of size of her sh contrasting with the smallest of him. Uh, oh, I'm gonna go. <laughs> 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 um, it it got me it got me real good this time. Yeah, uh, I don't remember crying it at last, so it really got me. <laughs> That's very nice. That's really yeah. sweet. So, so maybe I need to talk to those psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> That's why old Root is there. <laughs> While we're talking about sad stuff, then we can get on to the good stuff. Um, I, I read up in my notes that the voice, the girl that voiced Ducky, mm. died four months before the film yeah. came out. That, well, yeah. was murdered. Murdered, in fact, by her father. And I found that really... Um, Holy cow. Yeah, like, really yeah, it really like, puts on a kind of deeper level of feeling when you like even when you know that kind of context onto something that is already quite like heavy in its mm. kind of big big emotional swings um, yeah. but then yeah. what's quite nice is that she had um yep 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 engraved on her headstone um which is Aww. kind of because that is the line that i remember most from the film like ducky was my favorite mm. character yeah. um and so the fact that yeah that there's that uh, legacy um to the, yeah. to the voice actress is, Definitely. is that was yeah. um that was judith barcy and i think she like it's said that the Land Before Time was her favourite role that she'd been involved in. Um, I think she was 10 years old when she died. Yeah. Um, but they had recorded her part for this and for All Dogs Go to Heaven. So I think All Dogs Go to Heaven was her sort of um, final chronological release. Um, but Don Bluth in particular said that she was just such a natural um, 
energy and presence. And you really get that with Ducky, because I think when you do get to Ducky being introduced in the film, it's such a breath of fresh air. And I think even if it hadn't mm-hmm. been contrasted with um, Littlefoot's scenes of um, grief uh, immediately after his mother's death, just she's just such a shot in the arm for the film. And I think it's very interesting that she is the first dinosaur you see hatch at the beginning of the movie. She's the one who comes out of her egg and is just so full of enthusiasm and so full of life. She's just bounding after this dragonfly. And you do get that shorthand with the other characters. Um, Like Littlefoot has quite a timid um, birth scene. Um, Spike just chomps and sleeps play. <laughs> yeah. um, and then Sarah's, Sarah's just straight charging. Out aggression. <laughs> yeah. but I think that's I think it, interestingly I think um that's Ducky is something that people really attach themselves to in this and I think Judith Barcy um does really shine in this I think all of the child actors in this film I think do a really good job um Gabriel Damon as well um but Judith Barcy feels like the lightning rod of them and whenever Ducky is yeah. on screen or interacting with something, there's just so much life there. Um, and it's really beautiful to sort of go back and just watch that unfolding. It's a similar thing to like uh, Fievel in an American tale where they, they're cast, like eventually cast so well, because apparently they went through a lot of different recording sessions with a lot of different kids for this movie. But um, the, that kind of genuine sense of that, these are children and they, they are talking like children and talking like children would 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 with yeah would with yeah <laughs> talking like children would with one another um kind of for me kind of helps that like i know that tension you were talking about josh where you kind of have this cutesy mm-hmm. element and this kind of more intense world i kind of i think that's why i it clung i clung so much to it as a kid um is because you do have this kind of group of kids who feel quite genuinely childish in their behavior to a point and going through like this stark prehistoric landscape i think that that weirdly that tension for the most part is what kind of works for me um yeah and i what i can kind of pin it to for when i was growing up until the point where they like just straight up make up a plan to like we're gonna murder that shark (laughs) 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 then it's a bit more broader He started it. He did very much start it. <laughs> uh, speaking of Shark Tooth, is it like, was that a design that kind of scared you as a kid? And is it something that you, like, I know you were saying you were quite surprised by how intense it was at the start, Nicole. Was Sh- Shark Tooth himself kind of embl- emblematic of that kind of shock at the intensity of it? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember being scared by it. Again, I have to say, I remember a kind of quite soft, quite nice cartoon. Um, and again, yeah, I was quite shocked at how, even even with the cuts, um, with how sort of, yeah, demonic he was and how scary. I mean, all the layering of, like, yeah, the sounds, obviously the music gets really um, just, like, scary and tense underneath. And then you've got, like, the children screaming <laughs> and then, like, the yeah. snarling of sharp tooth. Um, like, all of those things together, I was like, gosh, this is, uh, I'm not sure I would show it to a kid <laughs> if I had one. Um, but I mean maybe we're more resilient than we give ourselves credit for you need these tough movies when you're kids though I feel yeah. <laughs> builds and, character yeah and I guess like we were quite bombarded by it though right because like as you say with Bambi mm-hmm. with um, 
Uh, I'm trying to now recall all the other like Lion King. Like, yeah, that has a that, that was a like, big one. Mm-hmm. That it was just quite a common theme in all of these films that like the root of their conflict was you know a parent dying and them having to get over yeah. it. So I, I I think maybe you know we were maybe immunized against those kind of I don't know like a horrible <laughs> thing to say but maybe we were just used to like seeing um, people losing their parents and being like oh that's no biggie they'll get over it. <laughs> I was quite surprised by like. I'd forgotten how much um, the Lion King does seem to crib from this. Mm. Quite yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Even the wording, yeah, yeah, they say the circle of life. Yeah. That was a Steve yeah. Krieger line, and, yeah. His son was apparently really yeah. annoyed, like, Dad, they've nicked your line. <laughs> <laughs> And even to the point where, like, his mother comes back as a clown. Mm. <laughs> I see what you're doing, Disney. You're, you're watching what Blue's doing. <laughs> you're not letting him get away that easy. We'll, we'll nick your best images. Also, I felt quite a lot of narrative similarities with Ice Age. I don't know whether you guys... Yes! Um... One of mine... Yes! Yes, 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 yes. Just like, yeah. just like ragtag band of people coming together to, like, journey yeah. across yeah. a land that is, like, dying. Uh-huh. I was like, ah. Oh, I wonder if they've like, yeah, stolen any ideas or borrowed, you know, yeah. in, in a nice way. Yeah. Maybe they've yeah. been influenced by it. Well, that because even that bit, I'm so excited. Uh, I don't know why. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, someone else, <laughs> someone else noticed. It. I'm not going crazy. I think it's not long after his mother dies, and he talks to what's the name of the old nice old dinosaur that consoles him after his mum dies. Ruta. Yeah, Ruta the Narratosaurus. <laughs> After he chats to read the Narratosaurus, it cuts to a bunch of little baby pterodactyls, I think they are, fighting over what looks to be... A little cherry. A little cherry, yes, a, a, a yeah. tree fruit. Cute and um, that that was very scrap. like a penny whistle. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that had a lot of scrap energy from Ice Age, you know, with the uh, hiding the acorns mm. and, and fighting of the acorns. So yeah, I had a very similar thought. I mean, not not only just sort of the Mako sort of ragtag mm. character. Well, even Petrie. Little... Um, yeah, 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 yeah. quite scrat as well, isn't The he? little comic sauce. relief bits, yeah, dotted throughout. Yeah. Well, even beyond that, they both kind of share elements where it's a lot of the, the characters are overcoming perceived kind of pre- prejudice between each other's species mm. and like being being constantly told that they're not supposed to hang out with each other because that's just simply the way it's done. And this then becoming a story of kind of overcoming those those boundaries that have been placed by them by their parents and forming this whole new herd that the the land of the great valley can learn a lot from <laughs> there is um that is a layer of the film that i think watching as an adult i think you know they could have baked yeah. that in a bit better um but apparently one of the i don't know if this was actually animated but there was a scene that was at the very least um discussed which is where the uh the herd come across like an oasis in the desert and there are yeah there are some other dinosaur tribes there eating and drinking um but they when they approach they'll only allow ducky to eat and drink because she's the only one of their species something to this effect and there's a written version of this i'm not sure if it was a novelization yeah, that came out it, afterwards it's in the novelization right. yeah and it really makes explicit that's a turning point for sarah um where that like really shocks her um into then thinking you know because she is the one who for the first like two-thirds of the film is derogatory towards um littlefoot especially and the flathead species that she calls them um and i think that scene while again it's a kids movie so it doesn't need to be like overly sophisticated but you wonder how 
well it would have come across how much it would have really raised that point in the film um, to something that was more prominent when we think about it today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I, I think more to your point there as well, it's like that's kind of really the whole tri- like the triumph at the heart of the whole story that is that it is them overcoming these uh, prejudices to work together and not so much that they can push a big rock on the big sharp tooth. It is that they can um, become friends and do this journey together. And that, again, I, I agree that scene would have done quite nicely to at least kind of add a bit more uh, meat to the kind of the, the bones of what the kind of kind of comment on um, prejudice prejudices that is there um, but isn't necessarily as kind of as you say as well developed as you feel like they're very close to doing it's just not not fully there quite there not f- fully formed there's quite a nice generosity of spirit though i think that there's when they get to the yeah um the great valley at the end and little little foot goes in there and he, and he says hey guys we made it we did it we did it together and makes a point of saying we we did it together as opposed to i did it or my mum helped me it's we did it together and, it, and, it, and it, there is something that's very generous and giving about that, that i thought it's a really nice note to you know to send the kiddies home it's a good with, message yeah. kids yeah <laughs> that's actually where the other cut was um which i mm. guess that's a good time to bring it up which you can really see um clearly when you know about it which is that in the original version um littlefoot finds the great valley by himself and then goes back to yeah to take the others with him mm-hmm. um, which you get because after they defeat sharptooth you get a scene where littlefoot is isolated and he sees his mother in the cloud and that's when he finds the great valley um and that would have been then when it jumps back to uh the rest of the gang in the tar pit i think um they're in the mountains that burn, as Littlefoot's mum um, calls them. And that's when Littlefoot runs back because he knows that he's sort of like, he has like gone with his mother's words of wisdom. He has kind of found the right path and he's going to bring them with him. Um, and there are a few little cuts and things where you can sort of see that it's apparent that that's where um, things got moved around. Um, yeah. And there's particularly that beat where suddenly Sarah's ambushed and you, you're like, oh, what are these guys? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit inelegant, that part now when you watch it. It feels like a sudden like shifting of stakes. Um, there's, there's a bit that I always... When I watch it, it always springs into my mind and I find it quite funny. Um, like suddenly Ducky and Spike are trapped on this sort of like rock in the middle of the lava. And obviously I want them to get out. But every time I see that scene, I think, man, they're, they're on some floating cheese. It's like a big block of cheese. <laughs> It'd be a fun do at that point, wouldn't it? <laughs> that was quite. That other part was quite sad as well, though. At the end, um, where they think they've lost Petrie, um, and yeah. like then they start they, they start walking off, and then he like flies up, and he's like, "Like, are you going without me or something?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh," and like there's that like classic fake yeah, out. Yeah, there's that fat tear on um, Ducky's um, like cheek. That was yeah, that was quite yeah. Such a moment as well, like just seeing her like the so well animated her breaking into a huge smile at that point, mm, like dragging yeah, him along with her. So <laughs> wonderful. I do think they get they the animators and particularly the character animators. Uh, it's really like they do a really great job at kind of making creatures who inherently aren't really that 
cute when you kind of like look think of the idea of a dinosaur it's kind of hard bit hard to kind of make that look like a cutesy character but they kind of i feel like they build in enough texture and of to kind of recognize that as a dinosaur but also find that, that those ways to be really expressive in their in the character designs no, no, they give all the girl dinosaurs eyelashes so that you can tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that Littlefoot every now and again had an eyelash. So I wonder yeah. if there, there was just a point where they go like, does he look good? <laughs> still still figuring that out. <laughs> <laughs> and they blush, which I thought was quite a nice touch. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite an anime um, trope, isn't it? Like mm. having characters kind yeah. of go red in the cheek. I wonder if that's what they borrowed it from. They really do facial expressions so well in this film because, again, um, they do a great job of making you consider them cute and that you want to root for them. Considering, um, you know, they're 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 wrinkly creatures and they're they're kind of funny looking, um, but I don't know. You just get these really wonderful little animation grace notes, like whether it's Ducky um, reacting after she finds out that Petrie's still alive, or for me, just when like Littlefoot is cowering from his mother after he's just been hatched. And then she licks him several times and he just mm. looks up and you see this smile kind of like break over his face. And with James Horner's score kind of like fluttering in the background, just before all these strings just rise in and a choral comes in, you're just complete putty. Um, oh, I mean, yeah. I, I definitely was. I mean, Josh, because it was your first time watching it. Did those scenes like work for you just in terms of the emotion captured on animation and in the music? Oh, man. Yeah, I mean... I. I love my mom, and I'm, I miss her. I don't see her very often. So, and any sort of like mother-son relationship in films, I, I do find affecting. And um, yeah, when he hatches and, and and she licks him, and then he there's a whole like lick thing, mutual comfort. I thought it was very very sweet. And then the the bit that that made me go oh uh, was when after she's dead and after he talks to the the, the nice old um, I forget his name again the the Ruder. <laughs> Please forgive me. I'm new to this world. Um, but he's he's uh, walking on his own and he sees his shadow on the rock face and he thinks that's his mom. Oh and it, God! It's so... And he runs towards it and then he licks the wall, you know. And and that that um, you know it was a, a profoundly affecting little little grace note. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there were um, the sort of the, the the fundamental emotion of the thing. Uh, I think was was very effect- effective and affecting. They do spend that like good beat on like. His- him just simply being grief stricken mm. because it's not even like oh yeah he has the pep talk from old rooter and gets going mm. he's like completely yeah drained of energy and is refusing to eat and is just in utter despair and it's like it's, it's quite it's tough i forgot yeah. how tough that was to do you remember there's <laughs> that, that bit when the, the, the other bit that also made me wobble a bit was when he says um i miss her so much and it reminded me a little bit the whole scene uh, when he's being consoled and, and he's, he's confused and he's angry and he's scared and he's got all these bouncing emotions that he can't fully comprehend what it is to have lost his mother and what like what what death means for him. Reminded me a little bit of do you remember the body episode of Buffy when spoiler alerts for Buffy when her mum dies and um, oh I'm just imagining so many li- <laughs> all the listeners out there now have never seen it. <laughs> You, you, like, you've had a year and a half of a lockdown to watch a 20-year-old show. Get over yourselves. There's that episode when, when Buffy's mum, Joyce, dies, 
And the, the sort of the, the sort of... Have you guys seen Buffy? <laughs> well, I, I, I apologize. That, that, um, that was, this... Those were heads. Yeah. <laughs> that was the absence of sound of heads being shaken. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Well, whatever. I mean, you've had a year and a half of lockdown Tumbleweed. in 20 years. Um, <laughs> but you, you've seen it, right, Andy? I've seen, You've seen it, yeah. and, and there's that bit when uh, there's, there's, there's Anya, the character Anya, who's a recently converted uh, de- like a revenge demon who's now uh, attempting to be functional human being. No, no, but what <laughs> I'm going to say is, no, no, I, I'm not. I'm contextualizing uh, because it's a long way around of saying that she is trying to process what death means in this context and what her emotions mean in relation to Buffy having lost her mum, and she's trying to work through and like vocalize the things she's feeling without fully understanding them. And this beat in this reminded me a bit of that, which is very effective. Um, but obviously, I'm sort of bringing that up in the wrong crowd because half of the people here haven't seen it. <laughs> but hopefully, some listeners will know what I mean, and those that aren't angry at me for spoiling it will nod. <laughs> Remember that episode of Buffy where Old Rooter just turned? Up? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I don't have much to bring to this, so I've got to find entry points wherever I can. I think the film does such a good job of inserting as much as it should when it comes to Littlefoot's grief there in terms of still keeping it palatable for a young audience because again Andy and Nicole it sounds like you guys were a bit sort of surprised to see how much of that there was when you came back to this film again um like you said Nicole it was bleaker than you remembered it being um and I think these moments are very much part of that I think more for me the death scene itself is really sad, but it's the sort of scenes afterwards that I found really affecting. It's yeah. where he like snuggles up in his mother's footprint. It's where he gets convinced that it's her shadow. It's not necessarily um, something which is sort of once the death scene is out of the way, it's sort of like, you know, okay, we have a few slow scenes and then we just, we pick it up again. Like there's a good chunk where it is just sort of letting him wallow um, and try to deal with it. And I think with the, yeah, with, with the Ruta scene, um, in particular, the thing that really like stung me when I watched it again is just how at the end of it, he's like, he's going through all of these different sort of things. He sort of, he blames his mum, he blames Sharptooth, he blames himself for wandering far from home. And then the last thing he says to Ruta is just like a little, my tummy hurts. And it just really yeah. grounds it in, this is a kid. Um, obviously it's a, you know, it's a kid dinosaur, but it's just such a real sort of like, this is me just trying to get across everything that's wrong right now. Um, and it really hits hard. Mm. And it says something really truthful. Like, Rita says something like, like, it will about his stomach hurting, but then also about, like, the recovery from grief of, of being like, it, it was just going to take time. Like, you're not going to get over it immediately. Like, he really yeah. kind of hammers that point home. And, like, I, yeah, I love that moment as well where they do let him wallow and they do let him grieve um because yeah i think it would it would have just totally not worked if they'd have like then moved straight past him to being like a a happy little chappy or a brave a brave dinosaur again like you kind of did have to see that moment of breakdown but yeah it very it felt very adult that moment um and and it, it rings true now to be honest like for any adults watching it who have grieved like i feel like they can take something away from it as well mm. And yeah, time heals all wounds. If this is a land before time, then that wound's going to be open for a while, isn't it? (laughs) Well, yeah, and there's there's 13 (laughs) sequels and video games, apparently. (laughs) There's video Um, games too. Yeah, there's there's a TV show, there's video game. Um, 
that character we have to talk about just because I I loved her a lot was Sarah um in that I don't think I don't know like I had a temper as a child and I so I related to her a lot and like it was quite fun seeing like a character that like a stood up for herself but b like wasn't taking any bullshit and just like you know clearly is quite yeah has anger issues um and works through them yeah um and so actually I think part of the reason I don't remember some of the earlier like the the the, the bleaker stuff is because I attach myself very much to Sarah and Ducky and those were kind of like the lenses through which I remember watching it so like all of her scenes felt much more present in my memory actually i have to say mm-hmm. i i'd agree as well because there's like th- there's two scenes in particular one because i think it works very nicely as a character beat um for me and they both that these moments both involve sarah the first one is that beat where they're all um chowing down on the green leaves and uh, she's determined to get her own her own pile of leaves and um is hammering away at this one tree and then littlefoot just in order not to kind of uh, damage her pride too much, just kicks a little bit over. Uh, so she thinks that it's like her effort is being awarded. And I thought that was a very cute beat for mm-hmm. both of those characters. Yeah. And and also, it, again, it works for expression of her kind of grit and determination, but also in terms of animation. And one the scene that really sticks in my head as being like one of the scary ones that I found as a kid is when she finds the sharp tooth in the cave and how that's kind of the way that's animated is like mm. still looks great to me because they they keep him almost they remove the fact that he's a character animation yeah and build him into almost the matte background of it <laughs> so he looks kind of like he's encrusted in the rock and uh isn't on the same kind of plane as sarah as a character and it works with such great effect to build in almost a sense that oh this is safe it is dead he, she can just play around and then just suddenly for that one moment of character animation to come back in as the eye opens up yeah uh, that is a scene that's really stuck in my head (laughs) i think that's that's one of sarah's best bits as well and again it's another bit where the animators nailed it there's a bit where she she immediately she tumbles down his body realizes he's there um we're gendering the sharp tooth as well so yeah um (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, they, she tumbles, she tumbles <laughs> down their body, um, and when she's ascertained that the sharp tooth is supposedly dead um there's just i take great pleasure in seeing that scene just before she starts running up where she sort of like gives this little grin and goes <laughs> just yeah she runs. it's such a kind of um primal kid feeling of that kind of like oh 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 like <laughs> you can see the potential and then you can just see her like return to sort of oh no this is this is where i'm in my element and um oh i love that moment (laughs) and that whole scene that comes after it like i love it so much because again you get to see the duality of the personalities like they are like very well-drawn characters i thought but particularly that kind of dynamic of having her be like petrified obviously like running for her life but then in front of all the other guys being like yeah he like woke up it was chill like i walked over to him like and just being like i had him breathing but i wasn't scared like i just love yeah so so good so funny Puff up the chest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm great. So, like, looking back at it is, you know, that's her coping mechanism. Mm. Um, she's been separated from her family too. Um, and yeah. I think as a kid, you sort of, you know, you're like, there's stuff you really love about Sarah, but also you're like, you know, God, she's so stubborn and she's so sort of uh, pushy with a little foot. But then as an adult watching it, you're just like, I mean, Littlefoot's not the only one who's going through hard times here. Um, and... 
I think it's fantastic to watch that as an adult back and just think, no, this is really nicely layered. Um, it doesn't give you too much, but it gives you just enough that you're able to sort of appreciate Sarah's, like you say, duality there. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, because they are all alone. And like you, you get to see, yeah, as you said, like all these different coping me- mechanisms or just all these different ways of, of being when you're living with that truth. Like, again, coming back to Ducky and like how chipper she is. But one of the first things she says is, like I am all alone I am or like in that cute little like um uh I am Sam no what is it um two green eggs and ham it kind of reminds me of that the way that she talks is like <laughs> yeah. that kind of like rhyming yeah. cute rhythm patter. yeah exactly um and it kind of belies actually some of like the sadder things that happen to her or are happening like the way that she speaks but yeah you forget that yeah they're, they're still very young and they are orphaned basically yeah and also they're kind of like they're following in their parents' footsteps. Um, I guess if you like a real reach would be sort of like um, when you're saying, oh, it's about them overcoming their prejudices that they have, um, which they've sort of taken from their parents. And it's not quite Avatar The Last Airbender levels of, you know, <laughs> generational cycles being broken. Um, but it, there is a sense of, you know, the interactions you get with Sarah before the Earthshake are her father sort of telling her how the world works and Littlefoot's mother doing so as well to him, but in a slightly gentler way. So he's a bit more open to it. So Sarah's uh, idea of, you know, how do I handle this situation is just to go, okay, so I I never play with the long necks. um, So keep away from those guys. I have to sort of do this by myself. I hope she has a word with her dad. (laughs) (laughs) Wanted a nice little button on the end there. That would have been nice. Yeah. (laughs) Is that one bit that one bit is when Littlefoot first meets Ducky and tries to uh, practice that learned sort of um, discrimination that, that he's, he's heard from Sarah, but then he finds that he can't really do it because he's, he's just too fundamentally good and, and you know, uh, ingratiating and, and, and wanting to help, which is quite a sweet little bit. Of, and Ducky's um, too fun. Yeah. You know, I want to go dancing over like the cracks in the ground with Ducky. That looks amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is Ducky very much your... The ca- character that you most gravitate to towards as a kid as well, Mikey, or uh, what in terms someone of someone else? Um, what dinosaur am I in my BuzzFeed? Um, <laughs> no, I think I think I identify. I think this is probably true actually. Like I identified with Littlefoot, and again, I think that might also be like protagonist bias. Um, but just in terms of, I was a relatively not shy kid, but I was a bit quieter than the other boys, I guess. Um, but so, yeah. like, I identify with Littlefoot, but in terms of who do I want to be, I want to be Ducky. I think everyone everyone <laughs> does. She's just so lovable, and she's so generous, and she's so warm. She has all the best lines. <laughs> Did you have a favourite dino, Josh? Yeah, I like the one that eats the grass and then falls asleep. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually based on Don Bluth's dog. Yeah, um, it was based on John Blue based the character of Spike off his pet Chow Chow called Cubby, um, and he was. I think Don Bluth. I don't know if this is something that he actually said, but he's like Spike is one of, if not his favorite character. He yeah. was just like you know, just a good sturdy dude, just knows what he's about. I just love there was something so almost sort of Miyazaki-esque about the way he gets up, mm. methodically eats all the grass that's surrounding him, and the way that he, he, he holds the clump in his mouth and <laughs> swallows it and chews and goes to the next one. There's something so patient about the way that was done. I thought it was a very zen scene. I, I, I 
thoroughly enjoyed that yeah. little moment. <laughs> and then he gets welcomed to the family at the end like a yeah. fucking stallion. <laughs> <laughs> did, he, did he appear to get bigger to you guys? Yeah. He, I guess he grows yeah. for like a lot in the, the space egg, of a very but small time. from the egg. But, 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 yeah, <laughs> he reads. But then, yeah, he was, <laughs> he was so small at the beginning. But then I remember, like, seeing when they're all sleeping. And I think, like, is it Sarah that's, like, curled up yeah, into yeah. her? And, like, she looks tiny against him. And I was like, the proportions are, like, definitely off her. They're... The size felt quite elastic throughout. Mm. I, I don't, maybe it was sort of forced perspective uh, or, or something. But, yeah. I think the tree star yeah. definitely changes size as well, which... Um, <laughs> yeah, at some point it's like a blanket, star. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it disappears at some points as well, and you're like, what's happened? Yeah. <laughs> like, that tree star looks so precious. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Fievel's hat. like a hangover. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Don Bluth really loves stories with objects that, like, you shouldn't lose, but they forget to animate sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. When you have... I'm a guy that invests a lot of sentimentality in inanimate objects. So w- when characters have these things, like you say, that cannot be lost, I, it adds such an extra dimension of stress to me watching it. I was so pleased. Oh, it, yeah. It did hurt when that leaf got smashed, though. <laughs> that tree star got smashed, I should say. Oh, boy. Forgive me. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> what was, um, who did you identify you. with as, as a kid, Andy? Uh, it was more Littlefoot, and then um, Spike was. I, I I remember being a big reason why I wanted a pet of some description. <laughs> the, <laughs> the most pet-like out of the gang, and clearly the point of inspiration would point to that. But or, yeah, very much uh, Littlefoot because, like, kind of even like the Brachiosaurus scene in Jurassic Park, or uh, or just like Brontosaurus in general, were always like one of my favorite dinosaurs when I was growing up. So I was like, yes, this guy is the lead. And he's my favorite dinosaur. Before the fact. <laughs> Nicole, I think you're pretty you're pretty in into Ducky. Like just yep, yep, yep is something I've heard from you many times. Oh yeah. Like I I think I still say that now as an adult. Um Yeah. So I think I love Ducky most, but probably would have to identify as Sarah, sadly. Why sadly? That's it, it's a good balance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's probably not anyone's, like, favourite character. She's not the nicest character, is she? She's definitely, I, think, yeah. I, know, I definitely admitting my flaws by saying I identify with Sarah, but, you know, we are who we are. Well, I think not to rag on, did... not to rag on Petrie, but I think, like, I Sarah is, <laughs> Sarah, I think, is infinitely more compelling and empathetic in a way than mm. I find Petrie. And, again, Petrie yeah. is... Petrie's fine. He's he's one of the guys. He's just a bit of like, like a the, village idiot. Hey, I mean, I, he's I'll... He's a scarecrow from Wizard of Oz, isn't he? <laughs> hey, guys, I'll rag on Petrie. I hoped he was dead at the end. <laughs> and I was annoyed when than... he came back. <laughs> you hate him more than anyone who's ever lived, actually. <laughs> and and fictional, fictional characters. characters. <laughs> Very niche reference to an extended Stuart Lee bit there. <laughs> Now it feels like we're back at uni. (laughs) (laughs) What a herd Um. we make. (laughs) Oh my we no wrong film, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) How are you and Diana Ross? Do you know know where you go oh the wrong film. Um sorry. Apparently that's a that song was a big hit in Japan and is a karaoke favourite. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Which I find is a fun little life of the this Diana Ross track. <laughs> I did I did make that in my notes when I was watching through the second time. I ended the last thing I wrote down was and to play us out some Diana Ross. 
<laughs> I think that like I think grabbed me considerably more particularly this time and I'm sure it must have come across my mind when I watched it um kinda in my mid teens as well. But um I I am always surprised to learn the fact of just how brief this film is. And I think to kind of go back to that point of just how much bigger things feel when you're a kid. But was that something that particularly grabbed you guys, Nicole and Mike, about the the, the brief nature of The Land Before Time? Mm. <laughs> and how just like condensed, obviously now we're just so used to watching like much more convoluted plots and whatnot, but just how like brief and singular the narrative arc is, like... Yeah, from mm. the point at which, the, like, the beginning where they're en route to the, the Great Valley, but then, you know, from the point at which Littlefoot's mother dies, and then it's just, it's about continuing that journey. Like, there's really not much else going on. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of, like, as straightforward, I guess, as you would maybe expect, but I do kind of feel like mm. now with, like, I don't know, just thinking of Finding Nemo or Up or other animated films that seem to have a lot more going on, like we just have higher expectations i guess now for kids attention spans or ability to understand i don't yeah i don't really know what's like behind that but mm -hmm. it certainly felt much simpler than some of the things that you would sit a kid down in front of nowadays how about you mikey i think the point i tried to make earlier i'm not sure i did very well um was that sort of like the film itself as it exists you can show it to someone now and they will not quite get how or why yeah. emotionally attached you are. And I think that was kind of what I meant when I said it's not just nostalgia that's doing this. It's sort of like what you bring to the film um, in your own experiences. Because in my head, I was like, we really don't spend that much time with Petrie. And yet I feel like I've, in my life, spent so much time with Petrie. So much time. And again, I know <laughs> that I've like, sort of, I watched the, the second and third films in the franchise. So there's a bit more to go on, but there's not so much. And I really watched it again thinking, there's loads of Petrie stuff that I thought was in this film. Like, I at least thought he had more time. I'm just using Petrie as one example. And I think that's where, you know, being so attached to it as a kid, I just invented stuff. And I felt like, you know, they were characters who I could pull out of will in my head when I was playing or something. And I sort of like, I would bond with them outside of the film. And that's kind of what I mean when I say when we return to stuff, mm. you're not returning necessarily to what you're getting on screen. You're also returning to all the emotions that come packaged with that. And watching it, now it's very clear you know oh it's a really short movie and i feel like it ends incredibly quickly and as a kid yeah. or listening even to james horner's score at uni when you get to the discovery of the great valley sequence and you get that burst of instrumentation it feels huge and it really moves me every single time um but watching the film as it is it's actually sort of like a relatively quick thing like after sharp tooth's dead they run in they discover the Great Valley and then it's all kind of said and done and then it's over. And um, watching it from that, you kind of go, oh, okay, cool. Nice, nice movie. But in my head, it feels like such a sort of huge undertaking that they've um, they've achieved because of all of the emotional filling in I've done over the well, the years of my childhood and then being reminded of that when I've watched it as an adult. Um, so the brevity of it becomes really apparent when you watch it as an adult, not automatically to the detriment of the film, but I think you can sort of see you know, where having that sort of um, wide-eyed childhood ex experience with it does sort of fit in the gaps for you. And do you think that's also the fault of, like, then the sequels of maybe having watched um, later stories and going on other journeys with those characters and then coming back to this one and, and kind of taking those latent memories with you? Because I kind of felt the same, where I sort of remembered different things and I was like, oh, it must be from, like, a later film. 
Yeah, did you go very far into the sequels, Nicole? Um, I remember there was one called that, and there was an egg one, the Great Egg. There was something of uh, Great Egg Adventure. The, the, no. the second one is very egg heavy because <laughs> <laughs> the Great Guy Adventure. Um, well, funnily enough, I have I have a quick game I wanted to oh play. My God. Oh, awesome! <laughs> um, I I have about there are as we've discussed there are fourteen sequels as of recent as twenty sixteen, and a TV show, video games, and what have you. And um, I'm now going to read out four titles, one of which I've made up. <laughs> which one? <laughs> which one of these I've made up, leaving the other three to be genuine Lamb Four Time sequel oh titles? God. I feel like I might get this embarrassingly quickly. <laughs> <laughs> We've got The Secret of Saurus Rock, The Wisdom of Friends, Invasion of the Tiny Sauruses, or The Great egg hunt <laughs> well so that was maybe the one i was remembering the invasion of the tiny sauruses sounds like i don't know an episode of most embarrassing All bodies right. okay are you are you sticking with that nicole as your answer for the fake one the the invasion of tiny sauruses yeah it just yeah. sounds rude <laughs> uh josh what what's your what guess? was the second one again that you said uh, the wisdom of friends, I think, was the second. Yeah, one. I mean, yeah, I think the wisdom, of, the, the wisdom of friends, just seems too vague and non-dino or egg-centric. Okay, Michael, I've gone down some rabbit holes this week, guys. I'm not going to lie, and <laughs> I know that the, I know that tiny sauruses and the wisdom of friends are a thing. Oh, get um, out of here! And yeah, they're both genuine. I think it's either egg hunt or saurus rock, and I feel like it's egg hunt. Yeah, I think Soros Rock. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> egg Egg Hunt is the is the fake one that I made. So up. Is the... but weirdly enough, <laughs> is, is, is there a sequel with Egg in the title? What have I'll I remembered? Or have we like <laughs> Nicole, the, the second film is called The Great Valley Adventure, and that's the one with the villains. These incredibly no, plummy in British. It. I think they're British, like little weaselly villains who just absolutely yeah, adore seen. eggs. Yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've definitely seen that. So yeah, I've just pulled. pulled the egg was the most important part that, in your mind. I, I do love that you started saying that there, and I was like, oh, how did she get on to my fake title? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that you were quick. You were like, quick, let's segue to the segment. No, I'll play the game now. <laughs> crowbar it in, crowbar it in. Run the tape, run the tape, run the tape. <laughs> Four points, Michael Perry. Though, well done. Like I <laughs> said, back on the Zoom quiz, <laughs> just testament to how easily I waste time in the name of this movie. <laughs> well, it, it gives you plenty of time to waste. I mean, clocking in at fifty-nine minutes, and then like a good minute of that is a flashback to events that we've seen in the preceding fifty-seven minutes of the film. A little montage. Just like, what have we just seen? Yeah, let's remember some of the things we just saw, oh, shall we? That did make me laugh. Previously on the that movie you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> like, the last bit of that flashback was when he's talking to the cloud mum that happened about two minutes ago on screen. <laughs> uh, depends on the cut, though, mate. Depends on the cut. <laughs> uh, if, uh, if, if tomorrow, um, somehow the hashtag release the Don Bluth cut came out. Um, are you guys getting getting behind that that bandwagon to see that Don Bluth cut get the light of day? Yeah, um, for or sure. Or are you happy with the package you see? <laughs> you know, I want to see like the full, fully dark version. I feel like that would be yeah. like fun to watch. Definitely. I, I, I've, I always have a 
like great curiosity with any any film that you start hearing about like alternate cuts yeah. or mm. yeah. a previous version existing and and like also just have it and, and it's perfect in the case of this where it's the details of whether that film reel actually exists being so vague and kind yeah. of uh building this great mythology to the, <laughs> this un- extended cut of the land before time which i took for and for that reason, I hope it never comes out because I just love this mystery of whether it does <laughs> <Yeah>. actually exist. <laughs> it's like, like three quarters of Orson Welles' filmography is is um you know yeah has a similar mystery. Argentine salt yeah. mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope he's got more outtakes from the wine commercial that he did. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is done. That's what it is that we cling to. <laughs> <laughs> Finest champagne. Sorry, I've been celebrated for its excellence. <laughs> oh. oh man. <sighs> well, were there any other uh, points of discussion that you guys wanted to touch on with the Land Before Time? Is there any any prehistoric scratch we've not itched on our journey across the desolate wastelands to the Great Valley? I haven't seen a film called The Good Dinosaur. But I don't, and so I don't know. Oh, if this, yeah. I don't know if this is the plot of it. But like, I would quite like to see an animated film about how hard it is to be a T Rex, because they do, <laughs> they do just get like such a bad rap, and you're like, not all of them must be like, I don't know, maybe they are, but like born with a desire to like hurt and kill and eat. Yeah. But yeah. I wonder like what a T Rex would be like, because again, like a bit like Sarah's parents, kind of like telling her this is what life is like. I can imagine that there is a baby T Rex that like wants to be friends, wants to be part of the gang. Um, but the, the, the parents are like, no, like you have to eat these people, um, these dinosaurs. I remember them being quite sympathetic and Ice Age free, Dawn of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna see I wanna see this film but from the Sharp Tooth's perspective where he's just trying he or she is just hey trying guys, to make wanna... friends. <laughs> where are you going? There's an earth shake coming. <laughs> guys <laughs> Why are you there, hitting me? There is, there is a great joke in uh, an otherwise rubbish Disney film called Meet the Robinsons, where the bad guy has a T Rex as its kind of, as its as its henchman, and there's a part where he's like, Rex sees the boy, and he goes to seize the boy, and the boy is stood in a corner, and the T Rex just keeps banging his head into the part, yeah. and then he's like, Why aren't you seizing the boy? And the dinosaur just replies, I have a big head and small arms. <laughs> 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 Again, a real insight into the plight of the T-Rex in, in cinema. <laughs> yeah, they, they do introduce a T-Rex in the next one. They get their little uh, T-Rex egg that hatches and they call him Chomper. And then they sort of... Oh, I yeah, they, they kind of try to raise a peaceful, uh, a peaceful little Tyrannosaurus. Um, apparently, there's more of uh, Chomper in the sequels that I didn't see. Further down the line. So well, is that what the, um, the, the something, the invasion of the Chinese-saurus is? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that's real. Yeah. <laughs> that's, when they're, that's when they're around, I think, like, installment 10, and they're really, at, like, scraping the bottle of the barrel. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we do a 50s B-movie? <laughs> <laughs> the wisdom of friends. Yeah. <laughs> So as, as I suppose the one uh, non-convert or the one uh, who was not exposed to this as a child, my uh, I had a very different perspective to you guys. I'm, I'm pleased I've finally seen it and I, I thoroughly can understand why it means so much to you guys, even if I didn't have the same connection myself. But um, 
yeah, I mean, do you guys have any final thoughts just to round this thing off before we part virtual ways? Um, Josh, you could say that the, the time, your your entire life up until now has been the time before the land before time. That was good. That was yes. good. Yes. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> this is your... <laughs> That's a mic yeah. drop. Yeah, I would drop it, but it's quite expensive. <laughs> this, is your, this is your best episode yet, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for not leaving me alone in shit joke corner. I, I do appreciate it. <laughs> Happy to be there. <laughs> it's where we belong. <laughs> you guys want to join? Good, mate. <laughs> um, I, I will just bring up something fun that I came across when I watched it again, because I watched the DVD that I bought in first year of uni when I was reminded of Land Before Time. Uh, through you guys um and uh, i got the 15th anniversary version which comes in a very handsome banana yellow dvd case um and i had a look through the extras um of the copy that i had and very very kid kiddie friendly fare there's the my favorite thing that i found was there's um if you can get through to the extras menu you can navigate your way through there then there's a tutorial on how to use your remote control um in like proper like american style toy where it's like point at the animal um and press enter and then you'll find your way around the remote control and it just ends with things like a horse goes nay a cow goes moo and just like where where are the dinosaurs um and then the other thing is like a gallery of scenes from the franchise up until that point so i think that was a bit of like 10 movies um, where they just show like minute-long clips of special locations in the series. So I watched a couple of those, and the animation can be super trippy and weird compared to what you get with Don Bluth's house. Um, and it made me feel kind of uncomfortable about the prospect of watching the sequels, actually. It feels like <laughs> almost like a perverse enjoyment I'd get out of them, but nothing more than that. I would be watching them knowing, these are going to be rough. Um so I feel like as an advertisement for the rest of the series, didn't really do it for me. Fundamentally failed. They look much more commercial, don't they? Like much like I, I think yeah. we mentioned it earlier on, but like brighter in colour and just much more cartoonish. Whereas this, like you get the kind of textural kind of animated quality, particularly in the early scenes. We see like the sunset and you see um, the long necks mm. kind of going out into the Gorgeous distance. Backgrounds. Yeah, exactly. And there's like a real. Um, illustrated quality to it that's really beautiful and i think probably lost in the later the later editions apparently there were over yeah. 600 backgrounds made for the finished mm. movie wow Dang. and they're all gorgeous <laughs> really get play into that fantasia vein as well so this that's one sequence in fantasia and jurassic park were all three incredibly formative um <laughs> films for Dino Andy. I am wearing a Reptar t-shirt as well, dear listeners. It's the closest <laughs> I can find to a t-shirt with a dinosaur on it. For, can you... I mean, this, said, this is... Because I... Go on. What? No, no. What are you going to say? I was going to say, uh, this is not good radio, but can you stand up so we can see it? Please, can we see it? There we go. Andy's standing up. Oh! oh that's right. yeah, <laughs> kind of like a green backdrop. Looks like a green glowing backdrop. Is it a, like a Shin Godzilla? A yeah. It looks Godzilla. It's a bit like a Shin Godzilla, yeah. 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 So we'll post a picture, so guys. It's a reptile from Rugrats, isn't it? <laughs> 
Dinosaur, hear me roar. Okay, we should. Uh... Closest thing I had a dinosaur t-shirt right now. Yeah. All my Jurassic Park ones are in the <laughs> Well, I think that about brings us to an end of the Land Before Time. Um, this has been as much of a kind of nostalgia treasure chest to open as I thought it was going to be. And I would just like to thank you both very much, Mike and Nicole, for coming along to the ride and having, I knew you'd have as, as much enthusiasm for it as I would. <laughs> so... Thanks for having me. I mean, I feel like it's been a double nostalgia trip, like nostalgia for us just like digging into films and then nostalgia for the film itself. So yeah, it's been, it's been yeah. lovely. <laughs> oh, I missed you guys. It's been nice to do this again. Absolutely. Uh, uh, any kind of social medias or uh, projects on the horizon that you'd like our listeners to look out for? Um, you can follow me at Stone with an E at Cold. Well, I know at Stone with an E, Cold with an E, and Fox with an X um, on Twitter. Uh, thanks for having me on as well, guys. Real pleasure um, to talk about the movie and also to just like hang out with you guys again. Again, not to lay it on too thick, but just being able to talk about this with you guys after. 10 years since we first discussed it has been just such a treat so it's been great um yeah if you want to uh follow me at michael 92 perry just if you want some more trivia in your life go ahead watch him as he caves and gives in to those land before time <laughs> yeah. and we'll <laughs> stay, stay tuned for my tier list yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah thank you so much again guys Love you both very much, and this has been as much fun as I was hoping it would be. Thank you. Thank you so much. Love you all, <laughs> This has been fantastic. A big thank you once again to Mike and Nicole for joining oh, us. Such uh, a joy. On Land Before Time. I told such you they joy. were good eggs. I told you. <laughs> they are. They are the best. Good eggs in the Great Egg Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> They're the real prizes in the Great Egg Hunt. Coming 2023, The Land Before Time 15, <laughs> The Great Egg Hunt. <laughs> oh, um, yes. And also, also thank you, dear listeners, because we yeah. had quite a nice uh, response on Twitter for The Land Before Time. It's clearly a film, um, as at King 29 says, clearly a film that a lot of you see as one of the best animated films of all time and a cherished one of ch- of many a childhood. Indeed, this is backed up by PJ at PaulJ86 on Twitter, who says, Land Before Time, Greater Than Sign, Jurassic Park, My Childhood Explained in One Line. <laughs> I, ju- I just read that as an arrow. I didn't read it. As... <laughs> <laughs> I thought... Oh, so you, you, you read that as like a, a linear progression from... I, I yeah, Land Before Time. Cut my teeth on the gateway. Oh, okay, so Paul... Because uh, it I... would just be the symbol. He's got the dashes in to make the arrow. Ah, again, it's like, it's, like, it's like with the hyena laugh thing, tomato, tomato. Paul at PaulJ86, if you are indeed a listener of the show, please do tweet us. You know the uh, the handle, but we'll say it again, at Ramblin' Amblin, and clarify whether you think it's a linear progression or one is better than the other. <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> Look forward to hearing from you again, PJ. Uh, uh, at Shepkeep tweeted to share his thoughts. Most of them are... James Horner, and as Mikey so so eloquently put as well, that James Horner is a big reason why this movie 
resonates and why I, I think particularly for us it has kind of seared into the consciousness bloody love james horner mm. and james horner is in all caps in shep geeks tweet as well so yeah. james horner <laughs> yeah um gavin strassel at gavin strassel on twitter says it's an entertaining yet borderline traumatic experience capped by a good diana ross song not the worst way to spend <laughs> a friday Japan. night when i was a five-year-old i imagine that is true i Really, oh man, I, it, this podcast Despite episode would be very different <laughs> if I had seen it as a five-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> but I have it, you know, it gives different flavours, doesn't it? Different flavours, <laughs> different strokes for different folks. So on exactly. and so on and Scooby-Dooby-Doo. I watched uh, Summer and Soul the other day, so <laughs> that song's very much etched in my head. <laughs> Great uh, uh, Sarah, Sarah Buttery, our friend and host of uh, Let's Jaws for a Minute podcast, Tweeted to say, this and Bambi, I think, were my first childhood experiences of death, which I think we could, a lot of us can agree with there. It's definitely one of those films that is not as good as I remember it, but the trauma is as fresh as ever. And by um, me crying watching the film earlier and my subsequent choking during the episode... I very much agree, Sarah. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, Andy, that you missed off the end of her tweet, but I, I just realised that when I copied it into the, the Word document, it translated the emoji that she used into a description of said emoji. <laughs> so so the tweet ends, uh, not as good as I remember it being, but the trauma is as fresh as ever, smiling face with open mouth and cold sweat. <laughs> so that's not actually Alas. That's not how Sarah to, uh, 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 yeah rounded out her tweet and rounding out this this collection of tweets uh, is, is a tweet from Jack Buckley at Buckley Jack on Twitter our guest from last week's not last week's last episode about Roger Rabbit and ever the man ever the comedian uh, he described this film as the poor man's we're back uh, the dinosaur story we shall be covering in in a few months' time. It's also 1993, so it's big year for Dino's 1993. (laughs) (laughs) We get to there some point in 2022, maybe? Eventually. Eventually. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much for all those tweets, yeah. Apart from Jack, take this seriously, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'd love you to get in touch again for thoughts on our next film and our next episode particularly because neither of us have never seen it nor really ever heard of it (laughs) and it is the aforementioned 1989 comedy drama directed by gary david goldberg dad starring jack lemon ted danson and a young ethan Hawke. so those are three actors i like Mm. There, there is an actor who i have not named who i do not like and not many people like anymore Ah, uh, um, you're talking about redacted. I see. That's going to be a fun one. That'll be a fun one <laughs> to navigate. Google you'll episode. find it, uh, then we'll we'll figure out how to navigate that one by the time the next episode comes out, or maybe we won't. <laughs> a few beers ought to help, eh? <laughs> so we shall see with our next episode, Dad. And if you don't happen to have the film to disc. I wonder if you can get it on Region 2 DVD. <laughs> um, you can uh, rent or buy the film digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Chile, Google Play, Sky Store, and YouTube. Uh, if there is anyone out there, anyone at all, anywhere in the world who listens to this and has any thoughts whatsoever on Dad, or your own Dad, or just the idea of Dads, um, or 
getting even with dad uh, a later ted danson film about a dad uh starring macaulay Culkin as well <laughs> <laughs> then please do tweet us at rambling amblin or email us at rambling about amblin at gmail.com uh, while you've got your telephonic communications device in your hand do crack open uh, itunes or your podcast provider of choice you know rate review subscribe leave us uh, some kind words and a five-star review if you're feeling generous or if you're not feeling generous don't leave anything just close the phone <laughs> and crack on and watch dad well we've been rambling again <laughs> oh look at me i'm rambling uh, ah Right, okay, I think that about brings us up to date and we, we hope you all come back uh, for our episode on Dad, if only to discover with us what the hell it's all about. <laughs> what is Dad? Maybe what it'll be the best dad? film of this whole whole crop and we'll be blown away by <laughs> Dad. <laughs> if Jude Law equals know. Daddy, as is... what is Dad? <laughs> as is the as is the kind of the the wonderful thing about this podcast when the, these sort of films come up we have no idea how we'll react and we'll never know what we'll discover and maybe we'll find a, a, a brand new favorite who knows <laughs> uh, but we hope you'll join us for the trip uh uh to look into dad next time and until then uh, it's a goodbye from me and also a goodbye from me, who, who is and am Josh Glenn. We don't normally do that, but let's, uh, let's establish that no. now. I, I, I just thought I'd throw out a two Ronnie's bit to see if I would throw you in. <laughs> and it's a goodbye from him too. And it did. <laughs> Grab you all take care till next time, everyone. Lots of love. Goodbye. <laughs>